0: So glad to be back with you all. Let me just ask you a first, uh, a quick question right up that. Who's here has heard of Joy Davidman? Joy Davidman. Yeah, I didn't think so, but it's actually the wife of C.S. Lewis. Have you heard of C.S. Lewis? Okay, so he's like a pretty good theologian. He's like pretty brilliant, pretty smart guy, great author. Well, his wife, apparently she was an author and theologian in her own right. I mean, I picked up a book recently by her, and I, I didn't even know that it was C.S. Lewis's wife, and I'm reading through and I'm like, man, this is great stuff. This is awesome. Who is this person? So I find out it's C.S. Lewis's wife, and it, she is an amazing thinker. And this, she tells a tale that I want to uh, convey to you guys. In the dark corner of the world, there's a missionary. He goes out, and he's trying to convert a cannibalistic tribe, which is brave work, by the way. Anyone who's looking to eat you, usually you stay away from them. So he goes to this cannibalistic tribe, and he says, you know, here's all the the Bible precepts. He he gives them all the thou shalt nots. He's kind of an old-school preacher. And this tribal leader says, okay, I think I'm I'm tracking with you. Uh, So Let me get this straight. What you're telling me is that I'm not supposed to take my neighbor's wife. The missionary says, yeah, that's that's true. And then he says, uh, you're telling me that I'm not supposed to take his ivory or his oxen either. And the missionary says, yeah, yeah, definitely not. Are you telling me that I'm not supposed to dance the war dance and, and ambush my neighbor on the trail and kill him? And the missionary says, yeah, definitely. I think you, I think you got it right. He says, okay. Uh, the only thing is, I don't understand, because I can't do any of those things anyways because I'm old. To be old and to be a Christian are the same thing. And the missionary's like, "Damn, uh, Something's missing here. And the, the, sort of the, the root of the, the idea tonight is, is that our view of Christianity? Is that there's so many things, so many restrictions on our life that we can't do? Do we believe that to be Christian is to be old? Do we believe that, you know, there's too many restrictions? We, you know, there's too many sexual restrictions. There's too many things that people are telling me that I can't do. Can I not think for myself anymore if I become a Christian? To be Christian is to be old? Or is to be a Christian to wear a straight jacket? We don't like anyone controlling us. Let's admit it, we like our freedom. We don't like anyone lording anything over us. John Ortberg, he's one of my favorite preachers, he tells a story lately that he, um, every now and then his wife will be in bed at night and she's reading a book and she's getting kind of tired, her eyes are heavy, and right as she's about to lean over and flip off the switch, he'll say, I command you to turn off that light. <laughs> and she'll pause right as she's about to pull that chain and flip the switch and she'll look at him, look at the light, put her head back on the pillow. He said she'll leave that light on all night long, as if to say, you're not the boss of me. We don't like to be controlled. We don't like anyone limiting our freedoms. There's too many thou shalt nots, and they all add up to one big thou shalt not. Thou shalt not enjoy life. We don't like it. This is what joy David means. C.S. Lewis's wife says about this. Thou shalt not enjoy life was never Christ's teaching. It was never, uh, it was we who have brought our terror and imminence into religion and then accused religion of bringing it to us. No wonder the Ten Commandments make us feel uncomfortable. We have turned them from a thrilling affirmation into a dull denial. Into a thrilling affirmation. We'll see what that looks like in a moment. But how have we turned them into a dull denial? We've taken them out from their contexts. We've taken them as a set of 10 things that are standalone set. We post them up for people to see, for people to not understand. And you know, I, for me, I'm not really big on trying to get the 10 commandments up all over the place because people who aren't believers don't understand the context. All they see is God's trying to micromanage my life. Can't he just go save the babies in Africa or something? And I'll stay right here and I'll keep my freedoms and I'll do whatever I want to. But I'm just here to say, man, if we, if we view it that way, we miss so much. We miss the story that's going on. There's an incredible love story that if we take the Ten Commandments out of their context, we miss the richness of that beauty of that story. So let's jump in to that story. Basically, Exodus 1 through 18 is God rescuing his people. God says, I'm going to take you out of the land of Egypt. I'm going to provide for you. I'm even going to split the waters for you you are going to be my people. And in 19, he says, okay, now I'm going to bring you unto myself. I'm going to claim you as my own. So God says, you are going to be my people. Moses brings them to Mount Sinai, to the base of the mountain. And here's what's going on with that. Is Cultures of this time, ancient civilizations, they would always, they would build their cities around mountains, and if they couldn't find a mountain or they couldn't get next to a mountain, they would make a man-made mountain, kind of like pyramids, where they're called ziggurats. I think we have a picture of it for you, so they would build it right next to it, and what they would do is they, anytime they needed God, they would ascend to the top. And they would say, okay, God, now I'm a little bit closer to you. I'm going to bring my offerings to you. I'm going to bring a sacrifice. And now that I did that for you, look what I did for you. Can you, you know, provide some rain or can you give me another wife or something like that? So basically, these people would, on their man-made mountains, would make sacrifices to their man-made gods. And God says, no, I'm bringing you to me. I'm bringing you to my mountain, Mount Zion. And you don't even have to ascend to me. I'm going to descend to you. The scripture says, God descends to the top of the mountain, which is a little play on words. How can someone descend to the top? Only God can do that. God descends to the top. And he says, you no longer have to, you don't have to go to the top. I'm going to come to you. And God brings the people and he pursues them. And he says this to them. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself, Exodus 19, 4. He's saying, I'm establishing trust with you. Based on what you have seen, I'm hoping that you will trust me for the things that are to come in the future, the things unseen. God's saying, I've rescued you and now I've got big plans, not just for you, but for us. And the Jews of this time experiencing this, they would say, they would pick up on some subtleties of the language because the Hebrew language is complex and it's beautiful and it's rich. And they would be hearing some of these words that God's speaking to them. And they would say, are you catching this? Are you hearing what God just said? I think something going on here. And we have a hard time catching this because we speak English. We don't understand the vast Jewish culture and history and tradition. I've always loved the culture of uh, Judaism. In fact, ever since I was five, actually, uh, when I was five years old, I was in kindergarten, and one of the kids' moms came in and taught us all about uh, being Jewish. And so she brought all of us a dreidel, and she told us about Hanukkah, and she told us about this guy named Judah Maccabee who fought to set the people free this really cool song. And I came home, and I said, Mom, I want to be Jewish. <laughs> and she was like, Josh, Josh, um, it's not like a club, you know? <laughs> This is like a people. It's, it's, it's a way of, it's a religion. And I'm like, I don't care. I want to be it. I want to do that. So I've always had this like, love for Jewish culture and traditions and history. And the people of this time, they would hear God speaking and they would hear his language, the, the beautiful words, and they would say, this is wedding language. God's, God's proposing to us. Through the words that he's using, he's, he's insinuating something here. I can't believe I'm hearing it. It shouldn't be a surprise to us because we have the Bible. They didn't actually have a scripture, it was happening back then. But we could pick up Jeremiah 2 and read what God says How, as a bride, you loved me and followed me through the wilderness. And in the New Testament, how is the church described? Is the bride of Christ. And so the Hebrew people at this time, they would see that a wedding process was underway. And there's several layers. There's several beautiful things that happens in a Hebrew wedding. The first one is lakah. Then there's segula and mikvah and ketubah and Hoopa. Aren't these great words? I told you. It's awesome. Say hoopa. Hoopa is a cool word, right? So we start off with lakah. Lakah is this Hebrew word that just basically means to Take. It's basically when a guy would see a girl that he was attracted to and say I want to take you as as my own I want to make you mine and it's not like so possessive, you know If a guy said that to a girl now, it'd be like uh, you could take yourself out of here But but back then it would be like this guy's pursuing me This is a beautiful thing And this is what god says to the people in exodus 6 7. I will take you as my people And I will be your god so the first stage is set, that God wants to take them as his people. And so that would kind of perk their ear a little bit. That would just be one thing. But then he says, Segula. He straight up says, Segula. So to them, that would have been pretty important. The word Segula means special treasure. So the first, the first word would be Laka. And then all of the, the girlfriends of this girl would say, but has he said Segula yet? Segula, has he said it? And then finally, it would happen. Where the, 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 the groom-to-be would say You are my treasured possession. And this is an opportunity for the groom to look at the bride and say, Above everyone else, I choose you. I want you to be my bride. Above everyone else, you will be my special treasure. Literally, the word basically means this that a king would have all kinds of treasure, but then he would have his most finest, most treasurable things, things that he couldn't even put a price on. He would have a room that not anyone could go into, that he would just, that would be his place. And that's what this word is. Exodus nineteen five. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my segula. You'll be my treasured possession. And the people this time, they would, okay, first he said lakah. Now he said segula. Does he really want to marry us as a people? Doesn't he know who we are? Doesn't he know that we're just no good slaves? And God says straight up, I know exactly who you are. And I did say "Lakai," I did say Segula. I want to be with you despite all of your flaws. And isn't that the best when someone wants to be with you even though they have all the dirt on you? (laughs) Because we go through life hoping that people just won't find out all the junk that's inside of us. But then when someone actually finds out and we think, okay, now they're going to leave and God says, no, I want to be with you. See, there's nothing worse than when we're with someone, but we get the sense that they're just there until they find something better, or until they find out the real us. God says, that's the world. That's what the world has to offer you. I offer you so much more. I offer you everything. So the next step would be mikvah. Mikvah. And it's basically this, go wash. (laughs) Go wash. Get yourself ready for the wedding. And it it also encompasses the idea of your clothing, and so uh, in this time, the Jewish father would make sure that the, the Jewish bride-to-be, she would be provided for, that she would have a dress, and that it would be spotless, and that she would do her ceremonial um, bathing and clothing. And so the Jewish father would make sure the Jewish bride had this wedding dress. And remember, we said that the, in the New Testament that the church is called the bride of Christ, right? Well, as we fast forward into Revelation, we see this mikvah taking place. Revelation 19, 7 and 8. Jesus is about to marry his bride, the church, and it says, for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Who gave it to her? The father, just like in this Jewish tradition. We see it here in our story in Exodus 19, 10, 11. uh, And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in sight of all of the people. The Lord is going to come down in sight of all of the people, and so all of this this wedding talk it's progressing rapidly now. First, Lakah, then Segula, now it's Mikvah. The people have done this thing. What people would have done in this time? Next is they would build a hoopah. A hoopah. Have you guys ever heard of a hoopah? Well, hoopah is basically this. It's just four pillars. Four pillars of some kind, and then you would attach a cloth to the top. And that cloth on the top would basically represent God's covering the marriage. And so it was this this way of saying that holy matrimony, when two people come to be one, is a beautiful and holy thing. God says, I want to be there in that. I want to be with you as you continue on in marriage. And so the Jews of this time, they would build this hoopah and they would look up in their uh, marriage ceremony and say, God is surely covering us. You guys know Rachel Ceballos and Joel Ceballos? They're on staff here. They got married recently, and they wanted a hoopah, And so this is them. So this is their hoopah. They actually asked me to build it. And so in my manliest man ways, I got my drill out and everything, and I, I actually constructed this hoopah and built it for them. It was one of the most awesome experiences of my life, really. It was such an honor. And then at the very end, they said, would you go, come up and bless us? Would you give us a word of blessing? And so Jeff married them and then I walked up underneath of it and it was just a moment where I felt like I should take my shoes off because I felt like I was standing on holy ground. The hoopa was there signifying God's presence and I extended my my blessing to them and it was hard to keep the tears from coming. It was a beautiful, beautiful moment. And that's what's happening here in the story. We see that God says, I'm going to descend upon the people and then they come to the mountain They've heard Segula Lakah, they've washed themselves, and now comes down the biggest hoopah of all time. They see the cloud covering them, and this is God's presence saying, the ceremony is underway. My hoopa, my presence is here to bless you. Now we get to the ketubah. The ketubah is one of the main parts of the wedding, if not the central part of it. And basically the ketubah is just this. If this is going to work, here are my conditions. The bride would tell the husband. The husband would tell the bride. They would just get it all out there. What are your expectations? They'd talk about social things. They'd talk about money. They would talk about sex. They would talk about, you know, where they want to live. And they would get it all out there so that they were on the same page. And they they would have their fathers there present. And they would have a spiritual authority there. That kind of held them accountable. So if the guy said, like, uh, let's have sex three or four times a day, then the spiritual authorities and both dads would be like, that's not going to happen. That's just not going to happen. <laughs> Let's be realistic about this. What is, what is actually going to make this work? The ketubah was a legal document. One of the coolest things about the ketubah is that in this ancient time, women, we know, didn't have real rights. This was a major advancement for women. Because it gave them rights. It gave them a voice into what they wanted their marriage to look like. And it also gave stipulations if this guy screws it up and he leaves the girl, there's things that he has to do to make sure she's taken care of. It's a beautiful thing. It's a thing that we, we we don't give God enough credit of how he made sure that there was advancement for egalitarianism back then. This was way ahead of its day. And so this ketubah would be uh, gathered together. They would even have artists who would make this beautiful. And I think we have an example of it. Uh, Can we bring that up? So they would draw something and then they would take it and they would place this in their home. If there's anyone getting married in here, they actually do this still. You could go to ketubahketubah.com and purchase your pre-made ketubah. (laughs) No joke. But God comes to his people and he's prepared them for a wedding And he says, Are you ready for my ketubah? Are you ready for my precepts? Are you ready for me to tell you how I think that this needs to be if this is going to work? And so we enter into the Ten Commandments. We don't view the Ten Commandments this way, but this is what God was saying I want a life with you, I want to be with you. Will you trust me? Will you honor what I have to say? And they, would, they, were, they knew that it was coming, and it was a holy moment, the holiest of moments. And they could just sense God's presence. They could see him. And they would, there was something so special about this that Jews traced their ancestry to people who stood at Mount Sinai for generations the way we do to like, oh, yeah, my great, triple, great, great, great grandfather was on the Mayflower or something like that. They would say, my triple great-grandfather stood at Mount Sinai, no way. So that's how it was. It was this beautiful, incredible thing. And in the people, there's even this saying in the Talmud that in some special way that, that every Jewish soul was present at Sinai. And so even now when they read the Ten Commandments, they stand up as a, as a way of honoring it, as a way of saying that these words have a claim on us too. And so that's what we're going to do. We're still in the middle of this, but I'm going to ask you guys all to stand up right now in the middle of the sermon, and we're going to read the Ten Commandments out loud, out of honor of the Ten Commandments. We're going to read them one at a time, and then I'll make just a brief comment after each one of them. All right, commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Basically, he's saying this is an exclusive relationship, but this is a marriage. You can't have other lovers. Got it? Okay, commandment number two. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. Basically saying if we're getting married, you can't keep pictures of your old boyfriends and girlfriends in your wallet. Okay? (laughs) Commandment number three. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. He's basically saying I'm giving you the power of attorney over my name. Like a groom gives the bride his name, God's giving us his name. He's saying, use it wisely. Don't sign any checks that I wouldn't cash, okay? Don't sign anything that I wouldn't sign. God's saying, use my name rightly. And here's what I want to point out too. And I got this from John Ortberg. This idea that the first two commandments were directly from God. Now we get a switch. that's talking about God in the third person. The old Hebrews, uh, rabbis would say, what happened here is that God spoke the first two commandments and the people said, okay, that's enough, we can't handle it. We cannot handle, Moses, you go up, you talk to God, relay to us what he had to say because his holiness was so powerful, such a beautiful thing. That's, what, that's why from here on out, we get indirect language from God. Commandment number four, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. God commands us to rest as he did. This is gonna be good for you, he says. Commandment number five, honor your father and mother. This is where it shifts from from vertical commandments to horizontal. Vertical meaning this is how you are to act with God. Now he's going to be talking about how you are to act with people. This is where it shifts from from relational to God, relational to people. Commandment number six, you shall not murder. Value life. God says, I've created. Why would you destroy it? Commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Sex and marriage is the combining of two souls. The knitting of two lives. The fusion of two people that illustrates the oneness of God. God says, I've created this. Don't destroy it with it. Commandment number eight. You shall not steal. Go through life giving. Don't always be a taker. Okay, commandment number nine. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Be a person of integrity. Speak truth. Be truthful. Commandment number ten. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You can go ahead and sit. Basically with that last one, it's God's way of saying, if you follow the first nine, you'll have peace and joy and contentment. I don't even think you will covet anymore. And now that we've read those covenants out loud, I want to cover two misconceptions. The first one is, what do you think, what comes to mind when you think of the Ten Commandments, the two tablets? I I bet you this comes to mind. You got one through five on one side and six through ten on the other. That's kind of what we think, right? Well, rabbis were certain that that's not what it was. They believed that all ten were on one and then all ten were on the other, an exact replica. Because when you enter into a covenant with someone, into a contract, you each get a copy of the contract, much like we do today. And so this one's for the people, and God says, I need a copy too. But then he does something strange, because usually, you know, you take your copy with you. So why didn't God take his copy up into heaven? He says, go ahead and put it in the Ark of Covenant with your copy. It's his way of saying, I'm going to be with you. I'm not going anywhere. My presence will remain with you. I'm marrying you. I'm going to stick around, okay? So that's the first misconception. It's this idea that uh, this is what it looked like. No, it was a contract that they each took with them and it symbolized that I'm going to be with you. And God says, since I'm going to be with you, I hope you give me the benefit of the doubt of the fact that I created the world. I created all mankind. And therefore, I know a thing, about, a thing or two about life and the way that it should be. The way, that it, the way that it is and the way that it should be. And that leads us into our next misconception. It's this. We refer to them as the Ten Commandments, but it's actually a misnomer. The Ten Commandments would be this, aserat ha mitzvot, but we see in the text that it's actually aserat ha dibrat, dibrat, and dibrat, which is what it is, would actually be the Ten Statements, not the Ten Commandments. The Ten Statements, because it's basically this is how things are, this is how things should be. They're rooted in just the way that life is. So in a sense, we don't really break the Ten Commandments. In a very real sense, we break ourselves on what is true, on just the way things are. So God says, I'm the creator of life. I hope you put your trust in me. And if you take these statements and put them into action, your freedom will actually increase. There's two types of freedom. There's freedom from things like outside circumstances or outside people harnessing you and taking you away from what you want to do. And then there's freedom for things. We usually concentrate on the former, on the first one. We try to uh, build our freedoms. We try to make sure that no one tells us what to do. We say, I could drink as much as I want to. But then what happens? We're not free to stop. And it's not just drugs and alcohol. We say, I could do whatever I want with people, I can uh, have sex with whomever I want to have sex with. I could lust. I could be greedy. Social media. But then we can't stop. And how free can you really be if you're addicted to something? How free can you be? Psalm 119 says, I will obey always and walk about in freedom. James 125 says, Look intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. When we make our desires our God, we walk around in slavery. When we make God, God, we walk about in freedom. God says, don't you know that out of anyone, I'm the one who's actually free to do anything. And yet he says, but I'm going to enter into a relationship with you where I bind myself to you. I'm going to limit my freedoms so that I can be with you. God says, I'm here with you. I choose you. Here are my hopes of how this relationship can work. I've got your best interests in mind. Will you trust me? Will you love me? And we say yes. Oftentimes we say yes, but then life comes. And those temptations come. And we think back to verses like, well, it's by grace that you've been saved. And and well, no one can really earn their righteousness. Romans tells us that. It's not by works of the law. He'll forgive me. Well, why do we obey, guys? Why would that be wrong? Remember what God has done for you. What do you do when you love someone? What did Jesus say? If you love me, you will what? Obey my commandments. When you love someone, you give yourself to them 100%. That's how marriage works best. I can't say that this happens all the time in my marriage, but it is an ideal for my wife and I. That, that I would give myself 100% to her. That even in the little things, okay, I'll change the, the diaper that no one wants to change, or I'll take the trash out, or no, I'll stay home, you go out. And the idea there is, That if I give myself 100% to her, always not looking out for my own interests, as scripture would state, then she would do the same for me. That she would do the same for me. That that she would say, no, Josh, you do this. And then we're both taking care of each other. And it's a beautiful thing. And God says, don't you know that I'm trying to start that with you? I'm I'm telling you, I've taken you out of the land of Egypt. I've heard your cries. I've heard the deepest needs of your heart. I'm taking you to the promised land where it's flowing with milk and honey. Don't you see I'm doing this because it's going to delight your heart? Let me tell you what's going to delight my heart, is that if you would live a life of freedom, if you would live a good life of integrity, of justice, of mercy, of purity, if you would just treat each other well, that would make me happy. And if we do this, if we follow these precepts, this ketubah, it makes the heart of God happy. And in the process, we live a pretty good life too. Dallas Willard says this, Wouldn't you like to be one of those intelligent people who know how to live a rich and unshakable life, one free from loneliness, fear, and anxiety, and filled with a constant peace and joy? Would you like to love your neighbors as you do yourself and be free of anger, envy, lust, and covetousness? Would you like to have no need for others to praise you, and would you like to not be paralyzed and humiliated by their dislike and condemnation? Would you like to have this inspiration and strength to lead a constant life of creative goodness? It sounds pretty good thus far, doesn't it? We want that life. We want joy and peace and, a, and, and we want to walk away from anxiety and, and into a relationship with our creator. We've got to stop seeing God's way as restricting and start seeing his proposal. One pastor put it this way, the 10 commandments are not 10 conditions for God to love you. They're the 10 proofs that he already does. That's the affirmation that Joy Davidman in the very beginning was talking about that he's for you. He's proposing to you. With these 10 statements, we see that God is pursuing us. He's proposing to us, and he wants you to trust him. He wants you to give 100% to him. My wife has said lately that she's really felt God has said to her, if you keep giving me the small parts of you, I can only do small things in and through you. That's pretty good, huh? God's saying, give me everything, if you give me a hundred percent, imagine what I can do in you and do through you. we got to assume that God has our best interests in mind. we got to assume that he knows a thing or two about life. And as we fast forward to the cross, if he didn't have our best interests in mind, why would he go through that? Wouldn't he have spared his son? He says, no, I will spare nothing. I am going to give myself to you. He's after our hearts. He's a suitor who's after his bride. And he's calling you, he's taking you, he's calling you a special treasure. He says, I want to go over you and be your hoopah, and have the presence with you always. And he wants to tell you how life works. He gives us the Ten Commandments. He gives us a Sermon on the Mount. He gives us the Bible. And I just pray that we would be a people who would view these precepts and commandments or statements, rather, as a way of God speaking to us about life about the way that it is and the way that it should be and his hopes and dreams for us. My prayer is that we would be open to him rescuing us from our Egypt, whatever that is, our so-called freedoms, drugs, alcohol, self-doubt, lust, old hurts, envy, our wounds. I pray that we would let him rescue us and bring us to himself. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and we absolutely love you. We love you for who you are. We love you for um, the way that you speak to us. We love that you know us, that you know every single piece of us. We know that you, you, you have all the goods on us, God. You've seen the deepest, darkest things that we've done, and you call to us still. And God, you provide a beautiful way of life for us, and I pray that we would enter into that. I pray that we would um, not be upset that we would have to follow your ways, but that we would give ourselves 100% to you. Father God, we love you with all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our souls. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.